I'm ABC's Aaron Katursky, and this is Bringing America Back, What You Need to Know. It was five months ago, on January 19th, the first case of COVID-19 was detected in the United States. Today, the country has more than 2 million confirmed infections, including record daily increases in some states. Dr. Richard Besser, who used to run the Centers for Disease Control and now leads the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, is here. So where do we stand on this? Yeah, you know, I, I think that we are in, in a situation where many people are, are tired of hearing about the pandemic, here, tired of having their lives disrupted by the pandemic. And unfortunately, we have uh, some in, in the political layer who are reinforcing uh, that sense that this is over. But, you know, Aaron, it's, it's really early days in this, in this pandemic. And unless we follow that roadmap that's being laid out by public health, in terms of how you gradually get people uh, out uh, and working and interacting socially in, in, in safe ways. If we don't follow that roadmap, we're going to see places that are once again seeing their healthcare systems overwhelmed, uh, people's lives disrupted, uh, and uh, people losing their lives, uh, lives that could have been saved had people followed the guidance of public health. Is it that people in states where the pandemic did not initially hit as hard as it did, say, in New York or New Jersey, not internalize the messaging, or was the messaging flawed? I, I think that a lot comes down to messaging uh, and, and uh, the challenge that you face during a public health crisis when the primary communicator is not the public health community. One of the, the challenges I see with the, the way the response was, was orchestrated to this pandemic was the entire nation was shut down and at the same time. And so places that were not seeing any disease were, were, were treated the same as places that, where the healthcare system was overwhelmed. And that's never the approach in public health. You've made the case these kinds of decisions and communicating them should be up to the Centers for Disease Control. And in this pandemic, that has not been the case. You know, when, when, I, when I ran emergency preparedness and, uh, and response at CDC and, and led the agency at the start of the swine flu pandemic, the most important tool that, that we had was our power to communicate. And an informed public, uh, a public that trusts the messenger, is critical to success. And when you, when you have the political layer and the public health layer uh, at odds, uh, and the message being that public health is is the barrier to the economy coming back, then then you're in a really dangerous situation uh, because you then see some people following the advice for political reasons and some people not following the advice for political reasons. And these are not political choices. The idea that people will practice different behaviors uh, based on, on politics is, is a dangerous situation. You want the country to be unified. Dr. Richard Besser at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, such unanimity that he references has not prevailed in states like Arizona and Florida, which today reported record high numbers of single-day cases. Parts of Texas have also reported their largest one-day increases. That includes Bear County and the city of San Antonio, where Ron Nuremberg is the mayor. Mr. Mayor, thanks for joining us. Let me clarify, because uh, we've had in three successive days uh, three of our largest increases each day. So the, the cases are increasing, which we knew would happen once the economy and businesses and services started opening up for the governor's plan. But we wanted to make sure uh, we didn't see a corresponding increase in the hospitals and the severity of cases. That's the alarming trend, in addition to how fast the cases have accelerated. 
people have let their guard down. And I think that what I've said before about the pace at which the economy is opening in Texas doesn't allow us the benefit of data to see the effects of the decisions that are being made. Are you worried then that San Antonio and similarly situated cities in Texas are behind the curve? You know, what what I, I remain focused on is ensuring that we have uh, the, the, the proper measures in place at the time we're making the decisions to open up. Uh, when the state took control of the opening plan, we essentially, essentially yielded our ability to stay in front of the curve because, again, they're opening faster than the data shows the ex- efficacy of each decision. So in that sense, we are uh, behind the curve in terms of uh, the decision-making process. But what I will say is that the local communities, the urban communities of Texas, have been a very, very aggressive and proactive. The difficulty in our situation, though, is the state prevents us from mandating some of these best practices. That includes wearing masks. The governor prohibited cities from mandating masks, but you've made a different decision. How'd you arrive at it? You know, we had been putting in our orders um, protocols for businesses to follow. When the attorney general sent his letter uh, a couple of weeks ago and basically reinterpreted the state's order that said we weren't allowed to do that anymore, we had to uh, adjust course. But we've been recommending these things for a while now. But what what we did uh, this week was rather than mandate uh, masks for individuals, uh, we used the, the path that we had through the business protocols to mandate businesses to put mask wearing as part of their safety protocols. Uh, it was a little bit of a surprise that the governor, you know, essentially stayed silent on that restriction. Uh, but we're glad he did because that is one important measure that we can put in place. And we're glad that at least in businesses now they're mandated. Fiendishly clever, Mayor. Um, <laughs> have you spoken to the governor? And, and and do you think he's just living in a different reality than you're living in in San Antonio? I have spoken with the governor. It's, you know, um, in the early phases of this, it was a, a great collaboration. We've remained um, coordinated. You know, I, I would say I'm, I'm glad I'm in Texas as opposed to some of the neighboring states that are, are dealing with this kind of phenomenon because we have had a much better relationship with the governor's office. Um, but we need we need some enforcement mechanism because the mixed messages that are coming out, partisan mixed messages that are coming out all across this country have really blunted our ability to manage this uh, pandemic. San Antonio Mayor Ron Nirenberg, we heard today of a new consequence where hospitals have been unable to do anything but confront coronavirus. Doctors have worried about illnesses going untreated, and the result could be particularly severe for cancer. Today, the National Cancer Institute warned of thousands of extra deaths because the pandemic has delayed screenings, diagnoses, and treatment. Dr. Norman Sharpless is the Institute's director. This is fairly stark. You're expecting more deaths. Right. Well, you know, uh, I think some of the problem revolves around this word elective. You know, hospitals have sort of paused doing elective procedures. But, you know, in medicine, elective doesn't mean necessarily minor, you know, wart removal or something like that. It can mean fairly significant procedures like screening for cancer or even treatments for cancer, like certain kinds of chemotherapy and surgery. And so when hospitals, I think very appropriately, uh, postponed, uh, you know, many of these sorts of elective operations, that meant that the ability to care for cancer patients was also put on hold. And that's okay for a little while. You know, a lot of these things we think you can defer 
for a short period, but as the time builds up, if this were to go on weeks or months and months, then that that becomes serious in that, you know, cancer care is important. And by not screening patients for cancer and diagnosing new cancers and even treating cancers, uh, that will eventually begin to uh, cause worse outcomes. We will expect to see excess cancer deaths, more people dying of cancer because of delayed and deferred care. Is that for cancers across the board or were there some in particular? Right. So to get a handle on this, we've done some modeling. We have very good models for certain kinds of cancer like breast cancer and colon cancer, where we really understand the impact of screening and diagnosis and upstaging and, you know, these kinds of things. And in those two cancers, we estimate that, you know, a a modest period, like a a sort of six-month period of decreased care would be enough to increase cancer mortality for those two kinds of cancer uh, about 1% over the next decade. If that period lasted longer, it would be worse. If the impact on cancer care were greater than we assumed, it would be worse. And this is because in the COVID pandemic, people are skipping mammograms and colonoscopies? That's happening. And then also, you know, a lot of cancers are diagnosed when someone has a new symptom. They say, I have a new lump or I have a sore throat or I you know, have a new cough. And if they don't go to the doctor to have that evaluated because they're scared of getting a coronavirus and they don't want to go to the hospital or the clinic or the emergency room, then uh, that's also a way you have deferred diagnosis. So decreased screening, decreased you know, routine mammogram colonoscopy screening, decreased uh, you know, screening for symptoms. And then also, even when we have a sort of suspicious lesion, someone has a, a tumor or a nodule, uh, that surgery may be getting postponed. Dr. Norman Sharpless at the National Cancer Institute. I'm Aaron Katursky. Now over to Amy Robach. Thank you, Aaron. Joining me now is ABC News Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Jen Ashen. And Dr. Jen, most of the country's attention focused on some of these rising COVID-19 cases Mm -hmm. in several states across this country. But another story attracting a lot of attention, this woman who claims she tested positive again for coronavirus, having two negative tests in between those positive tests. What could be going on with that story? I'm glad we're talking about this, Amy, because it is getting a lot of attention. But this is a perfect example where you really need to dive deep. So here's what we know right now. A basic premise in infectious diseases is that once you've been exposed to one particular strain of a virus, it is not possible to be reinfected with that same strain. Now, the nasal swab test for SARS-CoV-2, you know, that, that's how we test people, depends on how you do it, where in the nose you do it, how, um, when in the course of the disease in terms of timing it's done. And like any test, there can be false positives and false negatives. But the bottom line is that detecting a virus on that nasal swab does not necessarily mean someone is actively infected. This comes out of data. You and I talked about this released last month from the South Korean CDC. They looked at 285 cases just like this, positive, then negative, then positive again. Not a single one of those people actually grew the virus in a lab. So that is really, really important data. Yeah. So for those of us who don't have our medical degrees. Can you explain to us how a virus can be present and not indicate infection? Absolutely. And the key word here is viral debris. The theory is that when that test is done, that nasal swab, it's picking up fragments of the virus's genetic material, but the virus is not alive. So it's not the whole virus. And again, it depends. Are you just putting the Q-tip in the bottom of your nose? Are you putting it all the way back in the nasal pharynx? That can affect whether you get a positive or negative. And people can shed this virus 
virus and not still be actively infected, not be mm-hmm. symptomatic, although some are and they can be for a long time, and they are not contagious. So the theory is that you should not be using these nasal swabs to say, now you've recovered. Wow. Okay. And researchers, we should point out, are still looking into so much about testing. What do we still need to learn? Well, we don't really still know when the ideal window or time in the course of someone's disease is to test them. We don't know, do you test someone every day? Do you test someone when they're the most symptomatic? A lot of that we're still figuring out. We don't know how long people can actually shed the virus. So how long these viral fragments or debris can be detected in someone's nose who has been sick or infected. And we don't really have good data yet on the other strains that may be circulating in the U.S. We're following maybe strains in Europe, a new strain in Beijing. This is not a surprise, but we need that data for the U.S. So a lot more research needs to be done. And Amy, this was a perfect example of why you needed to go beneath the headline to really understand this. All right. Thank you for taking us there, Dr. Jen. As more and more states now begin to reopen, many cities are beginning to see the effects of that, a dramatic rise in COVID-19 cases. Georgia is one of those states. Just this week, restaurant restrictions eased, allowing them to operate at full capacity, followed by the news of an increase in positive tests and deaths. So is all of this reopening too much too soon? I'm joined by Mayor of Augusta, Georgia, Hardy Davis. Mayor Davis, thanks for being with us. And tell us how your city is doing and, and what your thoughts are on the reopening of your state. Thanks, Amy. Great to be here. Uh, in Augusta, we have, just like many other cities in the state of Georgia, we've seen a fairly significant uptick in cases. We're tracking out of 711 confirmed cases with 41 deaths at this point. Uh, the state of Georgia alone is at 60 plus thousand, almost 61,000 confirmed cases and 2,600 deaths in the state of Georgia. Uh, we've moved to a place of reopening, and I think many of us across the state were concerned about that. I think the concern that we share now is the fact that people are not taking uh, serious consideration for the safe social distancing measures. Uh, People are not wearing face masks or coverings. And I think we've got a very tough summer that we're going to be slogging through as we see more cases taking place in Georgia. Yeah, and Mayor, we continue to see COVID-19 cases disproportionately impacting communities of color and the working class. How are you focusing on these disparities to help your city respond? One of the things that we've done is partner with our local Department of Public Health and in partnership with the state of Georgia. Uh, we've had testing sites that are in the community, particularly where black and brown uh, individuals are. Uh, that's been very helpful. We've expanded not only our ability to do testing, but more importantly, taking those tests to where people are. So many of the drive up testing sites are places that people who don't have uh, personal vehicles or don't have their own transportation can't get to. So we've taken them to where the people are. We've stood up testing sites at our local fire stations, which are right in the middle of communities of color. And I think that's been very helpful to us uh, with this increased in testing. I don't think that that's what we can attribute the number of positive cases to. That's going to happen simply because people have now seen states opening, Georgia being the first of the states to do that uh, in fairly rapid fashion. And so I think, again, we've got a very tough summer ahead of us as we see more cases, not only across the state of Georgia, but in the South, as people do more traveling, students are out of schools. And so we'll be very busy in terms of how we address this issue of uh, COVID-19. Mayor Davis, I want to pivot to the Black Lives Matter protests. You said that you're very happy with the progress of the protests there in Augusta. What did you mean by that? Well, we've had five peaceful protests here in the city of Augusta, and they grew in uh, number and in participation. Uh, One of the things that's encouraging is that the people who have protested in our city, and I know that this is the case uh, more recently across this nation, 
is that they've said we want our voices to be heard. So the peaceful protests have been purposeful. Uh, the voices of the victims have been uh, raised, but now they are demanding protesters real tangible change. And I think that changes the conversation in America. Uh, when you look at race relations here in the state of Georgia, the legislature is currently in session and they're debating a matter about hate crimes. We're one of four states in the union that have not enacted uh, hate crimes uh, legislation. And so I think it's high time for the members, many of them, my former colleagues in the legislature, to get busy and get this good work done so that we can be one of those states that does have a hate crimes bill in place. Uh, and we can make sure that we're providing uh, safety to all of our citizens in the great state of Georgia, not just a few. Yeah, I know you've been working hard, Augusta Mayor Hardy Davis, and you've got a lot more difficult work ahead. And we certainly appreciate all of those efforts and for being with us today. Thanks so much, Amy. Now, the celebrations of Juneteenth around the country on this day, marking freedom for those who had been slaves. Our Deborah Roberts conversation with the Washington, D.C. entrepreneur on the family legacy of hard work and success. The black culture, uh, we're a family. Thank you so much. We appreciate you. So you are part of history here. Part of history. I used to have like 25, 30 soda machines sitting around that building. But they said, let's build you a soda pop building. And so that's how the Southwest Soda Pop came. You're a black-owned business. Was there a certain amount of pride about that? Yes. Black-owned business here, it meant a lot to me. I wanted my family, my daughters, to curb their legacy. I wanted something in the family to stay in the family for, you know, for years to go with my grandkids. Would you mind soft serve vanilla and chocolate? Four sisters working together. How is that going? <laughs> <laughs> it goes. It goes. Before COVID, things were okay. But once COVID hit, things changed. Oh, once COVID hit, things changed completely. You know, we were, you know, went, it, it, it made a complete turnaround. Because, um, you know, you go from having customers one day to having none. Thank you. Have a good day. How worried were you that you might have to close the doors? And all of what I had been through over the years, I was very, very concerned about that. By May, we had to do something. Because by May, we were looking, the bills had to be paid. We were at our wit's end, um, and we had to reach out or, or we wouldn't have made it. I was just like, you know, let me put my pride aside and just ask my community for help and see, you know, what their response will be. And it was a, an amazing reaction. How shocked were you? Oh, my God. I woke up, and it was like 10,000 retweets, and I was like, okay, this is crazy. We started to see long lines. Um, we started to see so much support. Um, the outpour of love was amazing. This last past Saturday, we served 271 people. The, the, in one day? In, in one day. The prior Saturday, we served 20 people. It's really good. Very, very good. I appreciate it. Supporting your black-owned businesses, being a black man, is important. Just to show love and show that respect and to just know that I'm here for you. But we have many, many years, many, many years, we labored in the vineyard and worked for pennies. Worked for nothing and never got paid for it. So now it's now a different time. Now our turn. There's become a time in life, this is our turn. And be sure to tune in tonight for the ABC News one-hour special exploring being black in America in the face of injustice, Juneteenth, a celebration of overcoming. That's at 8 Eastern, 7 Central, right here on ABC. Up next, when we come back, our medical roundtable on keeping our families safe this summer and beyond. Stay with us.
With plenty of uncertainty surrounding the coronavirus, many parents are now in limbo on how to navigate the summer and school safely during this pandemic. So moms from across the country reached out to us and to our experts to get some answers. And Dr. Jen Ashton is back to help, along with double board certified child and adolescent psychiatrist at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Neha Chaudhry, and the CEO of Prince George's County Public Schools in Maryland, Dr. Monica Goldson. They're all here to help answer questions on the minds of so many parents. So thank you all for being with us and let's get right to our first question. Hi, my name is Amber Fuller and I'm from Franklin, Tennessee. I have a 15-year-old daughter and an 18-year-old son. As a parent, I keep hearing from friends with kids of all ages that they're concerned about their students falling behind due to closures from COVID-19. So my question is, do we need to be seriously concerned about lapses in their education or is this a byproduct of our performance-driven culture? Dr. Goldson, tell us your thoughts about the COVID-19 learning slide that so many parents are worried about. Yes, thanks for that question. So it's natural for parents to be concerned, um, but educational leaders across the nation are equipped already to deal with what we call as a summer learning loss. It's now compounded with the pandemic. So everywhere across the nation, we're looking at ways to begin to close that summer learning loss. It could be through an extended school day in the fall, or it could be through what we call scaffolding content. Regardless, we're gonna address it when your students return. So reach out to your child's principal to find out how they plan to address it. All right, that's great advice. Let's move on to our next mom question. Hi, my name is Karen Horn, and I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. And I have two kids, ages 11 and five. And I was wondering if it's safe for them to go into a chlorinated pool. And also, is it okay if they go to the beach and in the ocean? All right, Dr. Jen, it's officially summer this weekend. So what are your thoughts on pools and oceans? Here's what we know so far. And obviously nothing says summer like swimming. So this is a natural top of mind question on so many people. Um, It really comes down to four factors. Time, how long someone is in a given environment. Space, how much space apart, which Again, when you're swimming or you're at a beach, it can be difficult to get that six feet minimum space apart. How many people are there? So how crowded the environment is and whether you're indoors or outdoors. And then when you talk about outdoors, what's the breeze like? What's the temperature like? What's the humidity? All of these are unknowns. The good news is that this virus has not been detected in chlorinated pool water. Those chemicals kill almost every pathogen. And it has not yet been detected in salt water or fresh water. So really, the theoretical risk is, again, about that close contact. And obviously, you can't and shouldn't wear masks while you're swimming. Right, right. I can understand why. Right, right. Now we have another mom. Let's take a listen. Hi, my name is Lisa Grant from Fairfax, Virginia, and my 16-year-old son just started a summer job at a fast food restaurant, but I'm concerned about his safety. How can I stress the importance of wearing proper PPE and safety to him? I feel like him and his friends don't take it seriously. How can I help them understand? Dr. Chowdhury, yes, as a mom of three teenagers, I can understand her concerns. How do we talk to them about safety precautions? Talking to teens is actually very, very challenging. And what I tell parents is that the more you push teens, the more likely they are to push back. So what you really want to do is try to meet them where they're at, which really starts with having an open, honest, non-judgmental conversation that's in the spirit of trying to understand his perspective, trying to understand where he's coming from, what he knows. And you might in that identify gaps in knowledge 
that you're then able to fill with a little bit of gentle education. Now, another tactic that helps is trying to enlist the help of your team in making a plan, saying something like, I know some workplaces are not taking appropriate precautions, but we have grandma at home who's who we have to protect. What do you think we should do? Sometimes just getting their buy-ins, it helps them more likely to follow through with the recommendations. All right. Very good advice. I was taking notes. Thank you. Uh, let's go to our next parent. My name is Jane Spence, and I'm from Alexandria, Virginia. My parents haven't seen my children since before the coronavirus. I'm worried that my children could be carriers and don't want to get my mom and dad sick. When is it safe for grandparents to see their grandchildren? Oh, Dr. Jen, I know we've talked about this. This is a big question for so many families. It's a big question, and there's no official guidelines on this because there's no hard clinical data yet on this. But there are some common sense steps that I think almost everyone can use. Number one, if you are going to arrange a visit and you've been in your bubbles thus far, you still want to keep as much distance in between the kids and the grandparents as possible. Seven feet is better than six. Ten feet is better than seven. If possible, you want to do it outside where there's more ventilation, masks on everyone, hand washing before and after, and unfortunately at this time, no hugging or kissing. Those are just common sense things to keep everyone safe. All right, that makes sense. We've got our next mom question. Hi, my name is Donna and I have a 17-year-old and a 16-year-old and we're from the Bronx. What activities or anything do you suggest they do this summer since there's no summer jobs? Good question. Dr. Goldson, you work with a lot of students. You also have teenagers yourself. So what do you suggest? Yeah, so maximize this opportunity to have your kids at home with you, but also utilize free resources that your school district or your local library probably has online available. They can do SAT and ACT preparation. They can learn a new language and the culture of the people that actually speak that language. You all could do a book study as a family and talk about the characters and plots and how you feel as you're moving through each chapter. And you could also do community service, which can help your child as they're applying for college or for the world of work when they graduate from high school. I love that. All right, we've got our next mom question now. Hi, my name is Deneen Douglas from Fort Worth, Texas. I'm a mom of three, ages 10, seven, and four. This past year, my four-year-old started school. It was a shock to her because she is used to being at home. Once the pandemic started, she was back at home with us And now I'm not sure how to get her back into school once it reopens. Because she is attached to us, I worry that it will be a traumatic experience. All right, Dr. Chowdhury, this sounds like a problem a lot of parents have when they put their child in school for the very first time. But now things are going to be looking different, feeling different. What do you suggest for this mom and the rest of them? I found that... Kids are a lot more resilient than parents often think they are. So the first step would be to sit down with your child and ask, ask him or her, what is it that you're worried about? If anything, are you excited to go back to school? What do you like about it? The important thing is that if a kid is worried to make sure that they feel heard, to tell them it's... I know this is going to be tough. It's not going to be easy, but I also know that we're going to get through it together. Something that you might want to try is to create a bravery ladder where each rung of the ladder is taking a small step toward separating from parents and going back to school, even if school looks different. That might look like something as simple as driving through the school parking lot, waving to a teacher, practicing keeping distance or wearing a mask. The important thing is no matter what you put on that ladder with your child to reward them then for being brave. That says that 
they chose to be brave and they earned their reward. At the end of the day, you want the child to call the shots, not the anxiety. Dr. Chowdhury, Dr. Goldson, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Zoos and aquariums across this country have been hit hard by COVID-19 with mounting costs for animal care and little incoming revenue. Some of these businesses aren't sure they will survive. Joining us now to talk more about these impacts is the executive director of the Long Island Aquarium, Brian DeLuca. Brian, thanks for being with us today. Give us a sense of how the Long Island Aquarium situation is going right now. Just how bad is it? Well, currently we're in a desperate situation and urgently need help. You know, while the pandemic and the mandated shutdown uh, has limited us from and any guests, paying guests coming into the facility, uh, you know, we still have animal care needs, critical care every single day, veterinarian care, special dietary needs, uh, habitat maintenance. We have uh, life support systems that are critical. We have tanks running at 40 degrees, tanks running at 80 degrees. We just had a piece of equipment go down last night, $75,000. So it's, that's a lot of tickets that have to be sold. So, you know, that, that in itself is, is everyday cost to us. In addition, we have the New York Marine Rescue Center here in the heart of the aquarium, and they are the only authorized facility in the state of New York to rescue endangered sea turtles, seals, and dolphins. And from the wintertime, they have 30 endangered sea turtles in the hospital, and they'll release them in August, but they rely on us financially to support them. They rely on the public that comes through the facility. And at this juncture, we have missed out on school trips that would come through end of year, April, May, June. We'd have 50, 60,000 students come through the facility. Uh, we're already getting cancellations on summer camp because that dynamic's changing with, with camps. And, you know, this facility at night turns into a catering operation. And uh, the walls come alive. It's a beautiful setting. It's very unique. We do corporate, uh, corporate events. We have weddings every single weekend, and essentially those have been canceled and or postponed since the pandemic. So how, those are revenue generating things that support the aquarium. Yeah. So how are you still keeping up those day to day operations and taking care of the animals with all of those costs? Well, so unfortunately, we've exhausted our, our cash reserves and, and, you know, we're incurring mounting debt. And, you know, we have an unbelievably skilled team here of professionals that are highly trained to take care of the animals. And from the very onset of the pandemic, we put them on an A, B team schedule. They worked three and a half days and three and a half days. The A team never saw the B team. And we were very concerned about A team getting sick and then another team having to work seven days a week to take care of the animals because they are specialists. Fortunately, we've done a very good job. We were wearing masks right out of the box even before the CDC made it a requirement. And our team, happy to say, COVID-free and very healthy, and we put all those guidelines in place now, you know, for the general public when we have that opportunity to be open. So our team is healthy and safe and taking care of the animals. Uh, that's very good to hear. And I know starting this week, you were able to start opening up in a limited manner. Talk about that, what the next chapter of reopening will look like and how people can help. Sure. So, you know, we're in a unique situation right now that we are on the river. Not right now. It's We've been here for 20 years. It's our 20th anniversary. What, what, a, what, a, what a birthday. Uh, but we're on the river here uh, on the Peconic, and it's a beautiful estuary. So there's an outdoor setting. We have 40,000 square feet of an outdoor riverfront setting area for outdoor dining. So Suffolk County and Long Island are, uh, and Nassau County are part of the Long Island region. And essentially now we're able to have outdoor dining and retail shops open. So essentially we've opened up our outdoor dining, sitting along the river. You could be amongst our sea lions, our penguins, 
our river otters, our koi, all those exhibits are all open. You can sit outside, have lunch, enjoy the 40,000 square feet outdoors along the river. And the bonus is you get to walk through the aquarium to get to the outdoor dining and retail shops. So you need people to come back out and do it safely, and you've set it up so they can do just that. Brian DeLuca, thank you so 100%. much for joining us today. We appreciate you taking yeah. the time, and we're wishing you— So we you... have a GoFundMe. I want to let you know we sure. have a GoFundMe. That's critical. That, you know, that's critical for us right now is come out, revisit our, visit our resort destination, and we have a GoFundMe that we can really need the philanthropic help uh, and any corporate help to help us get through this crisis because we're going to be feeling this for the next two years. Yes, I can only imagine. So we certainly applaud your efforts and hope people are able to pitch in. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. And time now for final thoughts and Dr. Jen. So today I wanted to really leave people with an example of how medicine can really be a metaphor for life. And there's a saying that you've heard me use many times, which is it's really important now more than ever to focus on evidence and not emotion and facts, not fear. It's so difficult now because uncertainty and anxiety and stress, normal, common, almost ubiquitous. Everyone's feeling it to some degree or another. And so really, really critical to make sure that when we act, we're doing it really based on evidence because otherwise things can really go awry. <laughs> Especially in these times with so For much sure. fear out there. For sure. Important. And I think in medicine, when you, when you focus on the facts and you focus on the evidence, it really makes things a lot easier, not just logistically, but also yeah. emotionally and, and psychologically. And you can make better decisions, which is crucial Usually. during these times. Yep. All right. Dr. Jen Ashton, we always appreciate your very important advice to all of us. It's Faith Friday here at ABC, and we're turning to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the historic Vernon AME Church, which is the only building that remains from the worst race massacre in American history. To this day, the Vernon AME Church serves as a visual reminder of the massacre and the reconstruction process of the city. Here to talk to us about his church and the state of his community ahead of President Trump's visit to Tulsa is Reverend Dr. Robert Turner. Thank you so much for being with us today. And as you know, it's been nearly 100 years since the Tulsa race massacre happened in 1921. Can you talk about what happened in Tulsa and then what the rebuilding of your church means to your community? Well, what happened here in Tulsa on May 31st through June 1st of 1921 was indeed 18 hours of terror, uh, state-sponsored terrorism, where the sheriff deputized two to 10,000 members of a white mob that descended upon Greenwood um, and looted, killed, and burned uh, her to the ground. Um, And the basement of our church, as you stated, was the only thing that we still have on historic Greenwood Avenue that still exists today. And our sanctuary that was built starting in 1925 was one of the first things that was rebuilt after the massacre, and it still stands. And it is a true testimony. Um, personally, what I believe is the power of God that he can still sustain and hold a remnant for future generations to see. And to remember. And you've said before that nothing has been done in atonement. And I know you're currently fighting for justice for the victims of that massacre. Talk about what you are doing. Well, every Wednesday, um, Inspired by God, I go down to City Hall with uh, my Bible and bullhorn and my sign, uh, calling the city to repentance um, and to recognize what they did was wrong. And to not just say I'm sorry, but to truly repent from it and to do acts meet of repentance, as the Bible teaches, and do reparations, repair and atone for the worst race massacre in American history. And this city, this state and country have yet to do those things. 
I want to ask before we let you go, is there a message that you would like to share for so many people who are struggling in your city or community that could use some words of hope and inspiration on this Juneteenth? I would I would like to offer that uh, God is still in control, um, that we are his hands and feet. And if we if, if there will ever be any change, it will come from his children that are seeking to make that change. And I encourage us all as we celebrate this Juneteenth to see truly uh, the power of what people can do together, inspired by him. Um, and I I'm, I hope and I, and I pray and I believe that the American people are ready for that change so we can truly eradicate uh, white supremacy and racist ideology from our society once and for all. I think that's a prayer we can all share. Thank you so much for being here, Reverend Dr. Robert Turner. We are wishing you the very best. Thank you for having me. And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.